there's something about really listening to what people are telling you and why they're telling you it, even if you don't act on it, but really understanding where people are coming from, their motivations, I think has been um, it's just been wonderful to kind of uh, develop those sorts of skills. Hi, I'm Beldit Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist, the podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Matt Westmore, Chief Executive of the Health Research Authority. The HRA protects and promotes the interests of patients and the public in health and social care research. Matt talks about the journey they've been on to identify and realize a clear, distinctive purpose in a complicated environment. He shares lessons for any leader who realizes that the pursuit of purpose requires an organization to embrace innovation and manage new risks. He describes how they ensure that their purpose drives their strategy rather than the other way around, and how they engage with a broader ecosystem to deliver that purpose. Well, Matt, thanks so much for joining us today uh, and for being part of The Purposeful Strategist. I wonder if I could just uh, start by asking you to tell us a bit about yourself and about the Health Research Authority. First of all, it's a great pleasure to be with you. So thank you for for asking me. Um, So I'm Matt Westmore. I have the great privilege of being Chief Executive of the Health Research Authority. Uh, We regulate health and adult social care uh, research in the UK. Basically, we make sure that research that involves people their tissue, blood, samples, etc., or, in, or indeed their data as well, is ethical, safe and legal, and above all, is in their interests. Uh, my personal background is, is somewhat varied, but the, I guess the golden thread through all of that has been a love of science and the way that we can use it to make a difference to people's lives. For most of my career, that's been in the way in which science improves health and healthcare and public health. Um, but I started quite a long way from that. Uh, in high energy astrophysics, but I quickly moved into medical physics. And that's a job in the health service where physicists form part of the frontline care team. And that's really what started me on a journey of working within science, within health. For the last 13 years or so, though, I've worked for research policy, management or governance organisations. So working at the system level uh, in health related research, I worked for a big funder of research called the National Institute for Health Research, and now for a regulator of research. Mm -hmm. And, And how long have you been there? At the HRA. Uh, just since uh, February this year. So uh, a relatively new appointment as chief exec, yeah. Good, yeah. good. Wow. So fresh eyes. Yeah, this is an interesting kind of conversation in my sort of journey as well, because this is you know, sort of thinking about the purpose of the, of the health research authorities is exactly the journey I've been on over the last few months. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, with that as sort of an intro, what would you say the purpose of, of the health research authority is? At its heart, um, it's pretty simple in that we protect and promote the interests of people in research. We're a government agency, we're an arm's length body, so we're here to sort of uh, provide a public service. And the thing we do is to make sure that research that happens in the UK that involves people, particularly patients in the NHS, but broader than that, is in their interests. And those words are pretty much what is written in uh, the Act of Parliament that established us. And it goes to the core of what we do and how we approach things. But 
Uh, one of the things that I've been looking at re- more recently is it's, it's also not very specific. Many organisations within health and research would say a similar thing, that they promote the interests of people in research. So, so more recently, I've been trying to extend that by saying that our specific role is to make it easy to do good research, difficult to do flawed research, and improve the quality of all research, uh, but always from the perspective of protecting and promoting the interests of people in that research. Mm-hmm. Is this kind of where your own thinking's gone, or has there been some process you've been working through with, with a broader group of people? It's a, it's a bit of both. So, um, so in terms of how did the Health Research Authority establish their purpose? Well, it, it's sort of in three stages. The first, the first stage was um, all the way back, really. It goes back to the founding environment of the authority, which is only about 10 years ago now. So the HRA is only about 10 years old. In 2011, the Academy of Medical Sciences produced a report setting out a range of problems with the way in which uh, research was uh, approved or governed within the UK and recommended the creation of the Health Research Authority. And that was then subsequently included in an Act of Parliament. So in all of that, there was a long and very involved process that included lots of public and stakeholder and political consultation. And they wrote down what our purpose was very, very carefully and specifically and precisely. Uh, so that's fantastic. We're very lucky in that we have um, that to kind of keep coming back to. But the downside of that sort of process is that the actual written purpose is written um, in a way that meets the needs of it being a law. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a law of the land. And so it's primarily written to explain and clarify to lawmakers and lawyers, not written in ways to help communicate or inspire uh, sort of, can I say, normal people, as it were. So, um, you know, myself, people in my team, the people we work with, and definitely not patients in the public. Um, so we've got that. That was the kind of core purpose, if you like, but written in a, in a very difficult way to understand. So the second process, which is what's happened over the last few months, is when I started as the chief executive, I started to look at what we do, how we do it, what we say we do and care about and what we actually do. Mm. Uh, and I did that through a, a range of um, sources. So, you know, everything that we write about ourselves, met literally kind of hundreds of people, some in large groups just to test out ideas, others uh, individual in small groups to where we could properly discuss things. That's inside and outside the organisation. And not just the obvious stakeholders either. So the people that, you know, I, you know, we know, understand us and love us, but those that perhaps don't understand us or don't love us. Uh, what do they think and feel about the organisation? And that's what's got us to this stage where I've been sort of working with my senior team to try and refine that. And the third stage is a stage we're just going into, which is now we've got something, is to go back out to the wider organisation, stakeholders and partners again, to finally kind of clarify and crystallise that through kind of wider sort of consultation and discussion. And we'll also start to take that further into what you might more conventionally call strategy as well as uh, purpose. Mm -hmm. So before we get to strategy, which I definitely want to talk about, um, just curious how you identified the non-obvious stakeholder groups. I assume that people who hate you make themselves known. Yeah, so that, so there, there aren't many people that hate us, but there are plenty of people out there that might be disappointed with us. And it comes with the territory of being a public body where you you know, you're trying to meet multiple stakeholder needs and often they're in conflict and you have to pick a path in the best possible faith. And some people kind of w- want you to go further and some people would not want you to go down that path at all. So um, so in terms of how I did that or we did it within the organisation, we have a stakeholder engagement team and a stakeholder engagement strategy, which involves the segmentation of stakeholders into various groups. So kind of pretty conventional stuff, thinking about which stakeholders just need to 
know about what we do and we might want to listen to how they're sort of thinking and feeling about how we're doing but we're not actively working with them but they're they're part of the wider kind of community we're serving or they can you know if they get particularly unhappy they could um, knock us off course all the way through to people who really we'd call partners we work with on a day-to-day basis one of the things that we do is um, try to connect up quite a complicated research system uh, that involves multiple agencies and so we work very closely with certain organizations so across that piece we kind of segmented um, different individuals and stakeholders and then sort of taking a step back from that and knowing about who are the commentators in our sector um, through their you know just past personal contact with people through the social media presence you know we work in research so lots of people write lots of things and publish them in various spaces you can kind of pick out people in uh, either organizations or individuals that you know probably think differently than the group of people that you work with um, uh, all the time one of the challenges is i think what's also really important is to work with people who probably kind of heard of you but don't really know what you do particularly if you're talking about purpose and articulating it and engaging with the stakeholders you you know if, if you've worked with someone for many years and they've you know read pages and pages about you then you don't need to explain who you are they just know it um, whereas someone that perhaps hasn't gone through that journey i think can tell you something really quite um, insightful about how you're communicating your purpose to the world mm-hmm. and and any big surprises coming out of that yeah not massively what i was trying to do was to look across not just what did we say our purpose was but also about what were we doing to deliver on that so is what we think our strategy should be different from what we're actually doing on the ground and there were some kind of um, differences in that but not 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 big ones i don't think i think we were fairly coherent the probably the biggest challenge is uh, probably true of many organizations but it certainly is true of the public bodies that a lot of the time we're expected to talk about ourselves and what we do in very precise comprehensive and kind of nuanced language and so if you go to a kind of public bodies website or or anything like that it's you know it's usually pages and pages of description of what they do and why they do it and all that sort of stuff now there's really good reasons for that it's about being uh, clear and transparent with the public about what you do uh, the downside is that you try to impart a lot of information and therefore don't impart a message you can't communicate so the biggest surprise for me i guess was trying to peel back all the layers of information to get to the kind of core message and that where there was some misunderstanding in the sector as to what we did and didn't do and i think partly because we were just trying to provide far too much information at the time rather than kind of a a clearer articulation of what we did one of the things that i think I heard in what you're saying, maybe I'm wrong, is when somebody says regulator to me, I often imagine that it's largely about price regulation and conduct, right? Sorry, particularly like financial services or, you know, utilities, or it's often around those sorts of things. But it sounds like the, leave aside what you're trying to accomplish, though, the actual heart of what you do day to day sounds like it's something different so what would be a typical thing that somebody might be doing Uh, we work in three different ways we run services where we receive applications from uh, researchers to do research within the uk uh, primarily england but we work uh, to a certain extent across other administrations as well and someone will apply to us to do for for example a clinical trial they want to test a new drug to see whether it works better than the old drug so they'll put together a very detailed description of exactly how they want to do the research and if it involves uh patients tissues their samples or their data then uh, then they're not allowed to proceed unless we've 
looked at it and said that is first of all that's you know it's worthwhile research it's ethical in terms of its conduct it's thinking carefully about how it's going to treat the participants into that research and is uh, going to uh, lead to worthwhile kind of knowledge which is you know for the good of society um so a lot of our work is looking at thousands of these applications each year if you think about the older model of a regulator which is to say yes or no to things so you get an application and whatever the field is and they say yeah you're allowed to do that one and you're not allowed to do that one to a certain extent that is what we do and that's the bit where i was talking about you know we want to make it as easy as possible to do good research so we've got some of the greatest researchers in the in the world in the uk they know what they're doing it's safe it's ethical um it's good quality research there's a few things we'll check around the edges but broadly you know we wouldn't be too much we'd worry about there but we see quite a heterogeneous range of research. We also see some things which are probably, uh, they're not wrong as such, but they're poorly thought through. So they might be from less experienced researchers who uh, perhaps don't understand some of the implications of the research they're doing. We want to stop those. We want to say, no, you need to go back, rethink this, because there are such significant problems with what you're planning to do that, um, that we wouldn't be uh, happy for this to go forward. But actually, the really interesting space is all the stuff in the middle which is the stuff where we can be we're part of a kind of almost a quality improvement part of the wider research team where our uh, committees have got such a a lot of experience about how to design and deliver uh, really great quality research we look at thousands and thousands of studies and we have been doing for many many years um, that we can say look this is looking good but what we think you should do is to kind of change the information you give to participants in this way and that's going to be better and then we'll be happy for it to go forward so we spend a lot of our time trying to do that middle bit which is to kind of improve the quality of all research um, but we do have a role to kind of you know just give the green light to cracking research let that go but also to say to research that needs a rethink hang on you know that can't go forward we need you to to think again about mm -hmm. that somewhere in there you make an assessment of is this a high risk project piece of research based on who's doing it and all that sort of thing yeah we really need to look at this closely this is not so much that way yes exactly so if you look across the sorts of research we'll look at we'll see research which is the first time a, a drug has been given to kind of human beings um, and so um, there's all kind of additional risks associated with that all the way through to uh, interview-based research survey-based research but even if it's still around kind of drugs and devices it may well be research uh, on drugs and devices which are in common use within the health system but perhaps we just don't know which one works in which particular patient group so it's inherently less risky so there are less ethical considerations and what we try to do is to have a, a proportionate view across those there's a very well established methodology for how do you do all these different types of research and so one of the main things we do is to make sure people are sticking to kind of ethical research it's sort of adhering to what would be considered normal acceptable practice from a research perspective i don't know that much about your field so i may be getting ready to ask an extremely ignorant question here um, but i thought one of the issues around research medical research and other types is you know companies they run eight studies one shows the result they want they publish that they bin the rest is that sort of that's their behaviour and not ours to regulate, or do you get involved in that? No, we yeah we get involved in that. So a lot of our business is sort of seeing these applications before the research has started. But the other thing we do is keep an eye on stuff once it's up and running. And one of the things that we would insist on as kind of overall good ethical practice from research is uh, publishing the results of that research. Uh, and it is a really important issue because not only 
does it mean that any individual study can look more positive than that perhaps it should do because you've uh, selectively just published one result? But pretty much all decisions in the UK, at least, and, and globally, uh, around healthcare or public health are based on summaries of all of the evidence which has been published. So there are some really clear methodologies where researchers look across everything that's been published in a particular area and synthesize that into an answer. Where does this drug work or not? Is this intervention beneficial or not? If all they're seeing is a, a very narrow slice and that narrow slice is the stuff that just happened to be positive rather than happened to be negative, then that can cause problems all the way down the line to you or I sort of receiving a treatment from our doctor. Um, so, yeah, it's really important. So we get involved in that sort of stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You started to talk about strategy a couple minutes ago. Just if we could kind of move on to that explicitly, what is your strategy? Um, the first thing um, I'd say is that I, I don't, necessarily distinguish really sort of purpose from strategy they form a kind of a bit of a continuum into ever more kind of granular descriptions of what we're doing so i'd say it's to protect and promote the interests of people in research and we do that through making it easy to do good research difficult to do flawed research and improve the quality of all research but then at the next level down we do that in three different ways first of all we provide simple user-led approval services. So that's when we receive these applications and we review them and approve them or improve them. Um, But we also work with others in our sector to connect up the wider end-to-end research system. If you're a researcher, you end up having to deal with a number of agencies because that's just the nature of the sector. So we work together to try to make that as streamlined as possible. Mm -hmm. And then finally, um, we convene and coordinate conversations about what good research looks like. So what do we mean by good and ethical research, which is where we would pick up questions like the importance of publication and transparency in in research. And we'll do that partly to feed into our own processes. So we may learn something in that process by having a conversation within the sector about um, publishing your final results is a hallmark of good research. Therefore, we will look for that in our services. And sometimes it's just to say, give to the world, look, we think this is what good research looks like, even though we don't necessarily look at those aspects. So that's what I'd say is our kind of our strategy. And of course, underneath that, we've got a number of projects and programs uh, which we're working on in order to deliver under each of those areas. But but I'd keep bringing it back to, to purpose for me. I think uh, um, I, I, I much rather we are a purpose-driven organization than a strategy-driven organization. It's not to say strategy is not important, of course, you need that, but it's what you keep coming back to. One of the things that sort of resonated in my mind as you were talking there about those three major areas of activity, and particularly the third one, is it sounded somewhat reminiscent of what I've heard various professional bodies talk about in terms of what they're there to do. How do you relate to what must be multiple professional bodies that exist in the world of medicine and research? It's a complicated sector. I, I, I sort of hesitate to call it complex. I think that's something a bit different, um, but it is complicated. There's lots of connections that uh, that researchers or patients and potential participants or healthcare professionals who want to understand research uh, or the findings from research need to interact with. And that's why we have these three uh, kind of elements to our strategy. If you like. So first and foremost, we provide services. We turn the handle on a really high quality, high throughput, high volume system. But if we only did that, then uh, what you would find is that we may say one thing. We say to to researchers, uh, you know, this is how you need to to do research. And then they go to the next agency and the next agency says, no, no, that's not how you need to do it. You need to do it like this. And suddenly they find themselves going back around a loop. Mm 
So what we do, to give you a very practical example, there's another organisation called the MHRA. We uh, approve research and they approve devices and drugs. So if, if, you, if you have a treatment that um, is potentially going to be used in the health service, it has to get licensed by the MHRA. We, we look at the research and we'll say, uh, we think you should do it in a certain way. And then uh, what we've had in the past is MHRA would look at it and they may say something subtly different. And, uh, and so what we've started to do is to do that through a combined process. So one application comes to us, but then gets farmed out to both organisations. We then, before we go back to the researchers, we'll have a conversation between ourselves to say, are we saying something which is inconsistent? that's going to give the researchers a problem to resolve. And if we are, then we'll resolve that before we go back to the researchers, before we go back and say to the researchers, here you go, here's the response from both HRA and MHRA. Um, so it's things like that where we can try to connect the system together. Um, and then the final part on that third element about kind of convening and coordinating um, uh, conversations and what res good research looks like, that's how we try to hang the whole system together. So if we say to the world through that conversation, uh, look, we Everyone in the system is saying it's really important to involve patients and the public in the, the design stage of your research. So if you don't do that, wherever you come into the system, whoever you ask, he's probably going to come back to you and say, well, why haven't you involved patients and the public in the design of your study? So we can do it at a kind of sort of system level if we work in that way as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, when we were talking about the purpose, you described how you'd reached out to lots of stakeholders and there were sort of three stages. and. How does it work around the strategy? Is it sort of just you just kind of carry on with that engagement process, or? Yeah, I think that's it, and um, that in effect is the stage we're going into. So I think, and I and I, and I keep coming back to the point that um, for me, it all needs to be purpose uh, driven, and and what we get through the strategic process is granularity uh, and also it's when purpose can't carry you forward so there comes a point where you know no matter how clear your understanding of your purpose is you need a you know you need a more detailed plan either for long-term kind of coordination um to kind of manage the interdependencies and things like that but i mean perhaps to coin a phrase i think the point i'm making is that purpose should eat strategy for breakfast uh, every every day of the week and in the you know however you kind of define strategy it's really the combination of your your purpose and your current reality in in my world and so i'm not saying that it's not important especially for someone that's got a podcast about strategy obviously i wouldn't do anything if i didn't have an understanding of strategy but the need for strategy for me is more around the limitations of working in a purpose-driven organization and you should never let the strategy of your business plan become your purpose and so what um what does that mean practically well you know you can go down one or two routes you can either produce a plan that tells everyone in your organization exactly what sort of decision to make in any particular scenario. That goes through purpose, strategy, all the way through to, you know, standard operating procedures and work instructions and the like. And that's okay if you can predict every scenario that they're likely to encounter. But to, in today's world, um, fewer and fewer situations can you predict ahead of time. And if you did predict them, they'd probably change by the time you got there anyway. So it's much, much more powerful to me for, for people to be equipped with the way to make decisions rather than to tell them what decision to make in a particular circumstance. And I think that's what I mean by kind of uh, purpose eating strategy uh, for, bre for breakfast. It's much better that you um, help people to think rather than to tell them um, uh, what to think. Um, but having said that, driving an organisation on purpose, of course, has its limitations. Uh, Large-scale, long-term and complicated programmes of work 
um, just can't be delivered on purpose alone. You can't have a bunch of people sitting around thinking this feels like the right thing to do according to our purpose if it's a big, complicated sort of IT project or something like that with all kinds of dependencies. But in using those wider tools, I still think purpose comes into the discussion. To give you an example, we've got uh, quite a complicated digital transformation program going on. So this is basically redesigning uh, and rebuilding and redeploying uh, almost every aspect of our kind of IT and digital provision, both internally and externally. Remember I was saying earlier about a lot of our businesses, these thousands and thousands of applications, we've got lots of external users. Um, now, that's an exceptionally well-planned uh, project, uh, program of work, really, um, by some wonderful, wonderful project and, uh, and program uh, managers and, and directors. Um, so we know precisely when uh, and how we will deliver all the different elements, what the interdependencies are, uh, what outcomes we expect to achieve, what benefits we want to do from the like. But even there, purpose still has a role because not least because we're using agile uh, development methodologies. So we haven't kind of pre-described everything you know every single button and every single kind of widget in the system um, but even if we did i think if you have an understanding of your purpose and remember ours is along the lines of protecting and promoting the interests of people in research when you're faced with what seems like a very detailed decision on something like a uh, i don't know a, a practical change in the user interface design you know change the color change the font whatever it might be change the location um, what we should be doing is asking ourselves questions like does this choice make it easier for researchers to submit good quality research? Uh, or does this decision make it easier for a member of the public to understand and access the findings of research that maybe they took part in? So those are purpose-driven kind of questions, even right in the heart of what is a very tightly managed project. Mm -hmm. um, any, anything in, that you're particularly proud of sort of in the way you've gone through I wouldn't even say developing. It sounds like it's almost been kind of not quite reimagining, but refreshing, renewing, further clarifying your purpose. Anything you're you're particularly proud of in what's happened there? Um, I, I think to say I'm proud is probably overstating it. I'm proud of our purpose. And I don't mean the kind of words or the document, but I mean I'm proud of that it is our purpose. Um, I'm proud of what we strive for, and I'm proud to be part of the team um, that's striving for that. Um, I like the direction of travel we, we've taken in terms of writing it down to try to keep it clean and simple, um, even though the natural tendency, particularly of public bodies, is to be much, much more explanatory. I like the way we're developing both our purpose and our strategy together in a thoughtful way that respects our kind of foundations and our history. So we, so I certainly haven't come in and, I, and no one has wanted to to kind of look at it and say, haven't we been doing it all wrong? Now let's do something kind of new over here. It's very um, respectful and understanding of our foundations, but then also not kind of afraid to take us in a new direction, uh, understanding you know, the whole environment has changed for us over the last uh, couple of years. And I like the way we're doing it in terms of a range of sources from written material through to all the stakeholder discussions. And again, that's something which I know public bodies sometimes struggle to do. It takes a little bit of kind of courage to step out into the world and say, not just, you know, what should we do, but this is what we think. What do you think? And for the answer to come back for a stakeholder to say, well, no, that's not right. We think it's something different. This plays out in quite a political and public arena. So I'm quite pleased with the way we're approaching that. Mm -hmm. Anything in it that you found difficult or you sort of feel, oh, I sort of wish the outcome had been different or 
if I had it to do over again, anything you sort of feel was less than what you'd like it to be? Um, not really, although the difficulties have been in maintaining clarity and some of the conversations have been quite challenging, intentionally so, and it's something about being happy to listen to difficult conversation, difficult messages, and many things which we can't act on, but it's still important to listen to them. So if it's things that we can't include in our purpose or strategy, for whatever reasons, it's just, there's just a finite amount of things that, that you can do well. Um, we at least need to understand what we're not doing and why we're not doing them. Um, I think that's a matter of respect. And I also think it pays dividends in the future because you have the trust of, uh, of, uh, of your wider stakeholders. So, um, and some of those conversations, I'm sure we, I could have done better. We could have done better in things. But um, certainly some of the work along the way has been quite challenging. Uh, and what's the impact been on you personally? What have you learned along the way? Um, well, I've learned a huge amount, but I've been very lucky in the sense of um, I've done this as a new chief exec coming into the organisation. I think if if I'd tried to do this hadn't having been around for many years, it would have been much harder because you, the, the naivety you can bring to a conversation is really, really powerful. The fact that you can ask questions which seem to, on one level, if you've been someone that's been working in an organisation for many years, might seem a bit more threatening or pointed than they really are. They're just kind of inquisitive. So I've learned a huge amount in that. I've learned a lot about how do you maintain simplicity in your message. I've learned a lot about the business and the various stakeholders and what people think about us. And I, and I think probably the other thing I've, I've learned is how to listen better in that process. So um, there's something about really listening to what people are telling you and why they're telling you it, even if, as I said, you don't act on it, but really understanding where people are coming from, their motivations, I think has been, um, it's just been wonderful to kind of uh, develop those sorts of skills. Mm. And is, is there anything I haven't asked you that, that you wish I had? Um, there might be something about the kind of, we've talked a lot about the kind of role of purpose within strategy, but I suppose there's something about the wider value of a purpose-driven organization that we might uh, we might explore what would you see is the, the sort of wider value across the organization of having a clear purpose the, the point is it does go completely across the organization if you want to work with brilliant people then i think you really have to understand that you only hold some of the cards brilliant people have choices and if you want them to choose to work with you then you have to understand what motivates them. and often and uh, and certainly most interestingly, that's uh, that's about a personal sense of purpose. The people I work with at the Health Research Authority are brilliant and they're driven by, they're ambitious, but they're ambitious because they want to deliver the sort of social mission of the organisation. And if you find a resonance between people's personal kind of sense of purpose and the organisational sense of purpose, then I believe you end up with a really, really high performing organisation that's more like a, a community with a common purpose than it is a sort of military regiment and yet most of our business language seems to assume kind of more of the latter and, and less of the former and I just think even in the the most tightly run organization most formally run organizations then they really are a community with a common uh, purpose so if you get that right it becomes much more powerful than just being first line on your business plan it's uh, you know it provides coherence and belonging and allyship and it feeds your recruitment and retention and it's about employee kind of mental health and well-being as well it kind of feeds all of these aspects if you're all in it for the same reason than just another way of writing a kind of vision or a mission statement if you truly believe it and, and buy into it as an organization then um, then it, it goes much wider than that but i'm just curious 
if I've got to write, there's a few hundred people in the organization. I'd assume all, I mean, by and large, more highly educated, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Would that same thing you're saying about purpose work in an organization 10, 20 times bigger with a somewhat more run-of-the-mill kind of average slice of the UK workforce? So first way to answer that um, is just to, to explain we're about 250 employees. Uh, we're actually include also a thousand volunteers. So a lot of our work is done by volunteers. The idea being that when we are reviewing research, we want that reviewed by not so much representatives of society, but but certainly you don't want kind of um, uh, people within a kind of an organisation with all the conflicts of interest and, and the like to to just do that. So so the first thing to say is that what we do is we're hanging together, uh, not just employees, but but this broader range of, uh, of volunteers. Um, I've not run an organisation that's much larger and I've not run an organisation in a kind of a corporate um, environment, not, not, not a big organisation. I, did, I, did I was a technical director for a small medical device company once. Um, I don't see why it wouldn't work. I think because what I'm, what I'm arguing for is not to reject strategy, but just that strategy understands its place. So the kind of the, um, that whatever level you need to prescribe your activities however granular that needs to be, then always at its heart is an understanding of purpose. Why is it that we have these plans? We're like, it's really about coordinating kind of multiple facets over a longer period of time, the sorts of thing that you, know, you just don't get if everyone just understands their purpose. And um, so I don't see why it wouldn't work, but I don't particularly have that experience. Mm-hmm. That's probably a pretty good note to end on. Matt, again, thank you very, very much for joining. It's really, I think, some great messages in there. Really appreciate it. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Please email any questions or suggestions to belden at mancus.com. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, we release a new episode weekly. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist.